1: Welcome back to the show. Today we have Lack Ananth. He's the CEO and managing partner at Next 47th. Lack, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kevin. Delighted to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. You've done a tremendous amount of stuff and we'll get into that in a second. But maybe before all that, let's start off with uh, where you grew up and uh, where you went to school. Yes, I grew up in,
0: uh, in India, in a little town in southern India called Pondicherry, which happened to be a French colony, while the rest of India was a British colony back in the day. Oh, I came to the US after, I, uh, I'm an electrical engineer by training, I came to the US for graduate school, and I've also studied, uh, went to business school in Europe, and uh, I've been uh, living and working in Silicon Valley since the mid-90s.
1: Interesting. So, what got you passionate about engineering and electrical engineering uh, early on?
0: It it was well. It did help that my father was a professor of electrical engineering at the university. Ah. So that was one one inspiration. But uh, but more than anything, I I really enjoyed tinkering tinkering around with um, with with odd projects. You know, um, building a little emergency lamp there or. Trying to do a little, uh, you know, a little contraption to the car to make the light, light, the turn signals flicker faster. So those are the kinds of things I was kind of doing in middle school.
1: Oh, and wow. that
0: did keep, uh, I liked hanging out at electronic stores. And in fact, last weekend I was taking my son to an electronic store here in Silicon Valley. So it's just that I I was just a little hobbyist in electronics, and that kind of kept the passion going and uh, into engineering as I went into it. Um, And I also learned to program in sixth grade and, you know, learned to write basic. And so that that interest in computers also kept going in parallel.
1: Very cool. So walk us through your career, maybe some highlights along the way, as well as talking about your MBA and why did you decide to do that? Sure. Um, so
0: I started my, uh, I went to graduate school here in the U.S. in Kansas. I moved to California in, in 1996, which was right about the time Netscape went public. Right. And I started working as an engineer in startup. So um, that was kind of my introduction to Silicon Valley. I uh, worked at a number of different companies. Um, some of them were in the early days of e-commerce. There was a company called MVP.com that sold uh sports memorabilia for the NFL, uh, for the NBA and the NHL. I worked on a pet food e-commerce company called Petopia. Um, I remember working on a project for Silicon Graphics. Um you know, doing their e-commerce store and what eventually became Google Googleplex. Now uh, that this was in the 90s, I went to business school because uh, I loved engineering, but I also realized there's more to startups than than writing software. There's the idea of bringing talent together, pursuing a big idea, how to fund and how to bring capital. So there's I would call it the business side of uh, of startups, and that was kind of my motivation to go to business school. And uh, when I graduated, I started working for a venture firm back here in the valley, uh, which was also a first time venture firm. And uh, we invested in some really interesting companies at that time. There's a mobile gaming company called Digital Chocolate, which one of the first investments I worked on, Uh, a company called Jasper Wireless, which was IOT uh, before IOT became a thing. So lots of interesting experiences there. I went to, uh, from doing a synthesis associate at a startup, I went to Cisco uh, to do in their corporate development group and worked on some really, really interesting investments and acquisitions there. The highlight of which is a company called Meraki. I got to know Meraki from the very early days, really got to know the founder as well, and uh, eventually um, ended up that uh, Meraki was acquired by Cisco for for 1.2 billion, and I was thrilled to be part of that and to keep, kind of see that whole journey. By the way, Meraki is still the single most successful acquisition in Cisco's history, and uh, and so it's, it's pretty exciting to kind of see that. Um, then I went to uh, Hewlett Packard again. Uh, there, I was uh, running the corporate development group for the enterprise business. Uh, had a big role to play in splitting HP into two companies, which is HP and HPE. And then after I did that, I wanted to kind of get back into getting closer to founders and startups. Uh, started uh, a venture firm backed by HP called Pathfinder, which still exists. we interested in some really, really interesting companies, um, Mesosphere, AdLom, uh, really kind of in the emergence of cloud containers and uh, the new models of security. So I think I, I, I did that for uh, about five or so years and then, um, it came to create Next47, which is a global venture firm, invests in B2B companies and uh, started that in 2016 and have been there ever since kind of running it. Uh, we have interested in super interesting companies here. Uh, a 3D printing company called Mark Forge that just went public. Wow.
1: Congrats. A physical awesome. security
0: company called Bracada, which is doing amazingly. It's a category leader. In, in physical security now, and uh, many other uh, amazing companies. Uh, so that's some highlights from a career perspective, Ken.
1: Sure. No, that that's really cool. And I'm curious to get your thoughts before we dive a little bit deeper into Next47. You mentioned um, when you worked at HP and, and you, you built their Pathfinder program. Why do you think big companies are doing and investing in those types of programs when they could potentially just go acquire companies or maybe just um maybe recruit ideas from inside and fund them like why do you think companies are doing a program like pathfinder it's it's a it's a very
0: interesting question i must say there are about 1500 different investment programs backed by companies of all sizes that exist and every day sometimes there's new one yeah. Uh, the, the fundamental motivation is that um, there was a linear process of innovation that existed for the longest time. You either had to work in the government or work in a very large company in order to have the capital space and the talent to build something new. Right. And you know, every decade from the 90s to the early 2000s to now, more and more of that real innovation of taking ideas and making them practical and real is happening in, in the what I would call the very large entrepreneurial market that exists. And it also has become very global even in my experience. It used to be that there were little technology innovation hubs in Boston and, and Silicon Valley. There were very famous things. People said like, I don't invest in anybody that's more than the 25 mile radius of my, my office. And and that business from 25 years ago has become a very global business. And so if you are a large company, I think the more enlightened ones realize that they don't have a monopoly on ideas. In fact, it's quite the opposite. All kinds of ex- ideas and experiments are being cried in this crucible of entrepreneurship globally, and they need to have access and understanding of what is going on there to help them kind of think about their future, to see opportunities ahead of uh, um, where some of their established competitors might see it. So that's generally tends to be the motivation. How it gets executed varies widely, and the results also wide uh, vary widely, as you know, Kevin.
1: Yeah, that's fair. And it's tricky because sometimes, like, if you have a hit out of the gate, Trying to replicate that on future projects can be challenging, right? Because we all know most startups fail and and I want to talk to you about that a little bit later. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, it's that's interesting. So what made you come up with the idea for Next47 and what made you decide to actually do it yourself?
0: Yeah, Next47 actually was the uh, uh, was a brainchild of uh, the German company called Siemens and they had okay. tried to recruit me for the longest time to come from Pathfinder to come run Next47 and I was a bit reluctant to do that because we we'd built something quite amazing I thought in Pathfinder. Uh, what, what attracted me uh, to Next47 was a couple of things. First, They wanted to build a a global, uh, Siemens had wanted to build a global investment platform. And I think that that I realized that the business of venture was becoming very global very quickly. And I had a taste of that investing between the U.S. and Israel when I was at Packard. But this was even bigger opportunity to kind of go do that. The other thing that drew me to Next47 was the idea that, that Siemens also was very committed uh, for Next47 to to prosper as an independent venture business. And they they wanted to keep it at arm's length. And uh, this is kind of what we've kind of built is an independent global venture firm that competes with the best venture firms out there. And this was an idea and a vision five years ago and, and we are well on our journey now. So those two initial things, the global and the independent part of it, were the big attractions for me. And that's really what we kind of pursued
1: here. Okay, very cool. So I'm I'm curious then, what verticals do you guys invest in? Because you guys seem to invest in a wide range of things, and I also think the fact that you're willing to look at global investments is actually pretty rare in a VC firm. Do you agree with that, or what are your thoughts around that?
0: Yeah, it's a it's a couple of things. One is that it's um, we invest very broadly in in all segments of B2B. So we don't do uh, B2C investments. So we are specialists in understanding how to build a business, how to build products and how to sell products into customers who are essentially businesses of all sizes, SMBs, mid-market, large enterprises. So I think that's kind of our, our, and, and, and within that we invest broadly in systems, in SaaS, in vertical applications in SaaS marketplaces, cybersecurity, developer and data tools, and deep tech areas like 3D printing, autonomous systems, and robotics. So, we—if you look at our portfolio, we will, you will see evidence of all of that. But the fundamental—the uh, the, the, the fundamental thesis that ties all this together is you have got to build products that businesses would love and business of all sizes can and you have to kind of take it to market uh, there so that's kind of the expertise of our firm uh with respect to the global aspect kevin it has um venture firms uh, venture started as as you know as a little bit of a cottage industry like three or four people working very locally uh around the area and working with a few firms around that and what has happened over time is that the big venture brands have realized that entrepreneurs everywhere are, uh, are, uh, entrepreneurs are emerging everywhere. And this expertise of venture capital, capital formation and the partnership between the venture investor and founders is happening globally. So I, I, we started in, uh, we started building one global venture, fund um, uh, in 2016, but now just yesterday, uh, um, Sequoia Capital announced that they're going to have one big global venture pool as well. Historically, venture firms have chosen to have separate funds in each geography. And now they've also realized that more the direction that Next47 has gone, which is to have one global investment lens, is kind of the right answer, both as a firm, but also for the founders.
1: Yeah, well, I think it makes the most amount of sense, right? Especially, like, I think we were going that way, and it sounds like you already did, so you would agree with me. But I think the pandemic kind of sped that up and really made most people realize at this point that we're basically just a global company, and we can work for wherever, especially in tech. I get there's certain industries that that's not the case, that you physically have to be somewhere, but especially in tech and SaaS – Majority of the time, you don't need to be right. So why wouldn't why would you limit yourself to one or a few geographic regions?
0: That, that that's correct. I think the in uh, in the very early stages, and you know this as a founder or co-founder of companies, it's the, the personal relationship and the rapport between the founders and the initial team that comes together is important. Yeah, and also for the early investors this kind of connection and building of trust happens in person with the founders who they partner with, because, you know, the partnership between early investors and founders is far from transactional. It exists for over 10 years in success cases.
1: Sure.
0: So, so that kind of chemistry trust and uh, relationship building does happen to have a local level. So the challenge with having a global venture firm is the trust and relationships that exist amongst the investment team you know right. and and to say hey my my partner in in Israel or Europe is meeting with a company and this is her assessment of the situation do i trust her do i believe her do i am, am i able to see the world through her lens or Or do I also have to be there in order to believe it? And this has been the most difficult part of building a global investment firm. And I think we've, um, I'm not saying it's easy. Many venture firms have tried and gone in different ways, but we've got the core of uh, getting that right. And I think many other firms will get that right too.
1: No, very cool. So how do you actually foster those relationships? Because like you said, obviously through video chat, Can be challenging.
0: Yeah, I think that this is uh, this is what we're trying to do. Where COVID was hard for us because we were lucky that we in in the early days of our firm, uh, our partners from the different geographies, we committed to visiting each other and spending time with each other, but also not just with each other, but with the founders. In, right. in each other's geographies. So we would, um, you know, uh, last week, as I was mentioning to you, when we were talking before the show, I was in uh, Germany and Sweden meeting with founders, right. along with my partner in Europe. And this kind of um, looking at things together, building relationships together, and constantly refreshing that trust and and the eyes on the ground I think there's no substitute for that in in the role that we play because we do tend to partner with founders very early and and there are numbers that are going to tell you uh, what the answer is here right you can't just say okay this is you know this is how they performed over the last twelve 12- months over the last six quarters, because the last six quarters don't exist. They're building their product. We're trying to understand the founder. It also gives us a great opportunity to take messages from one continent to the other. I mean, and to different from one geography to the other. So there's also enormous value for the founders to be kind of part of this conversation because they understand and appreciate the perspective when people from one region come to the other and on in B2B, There's no such thing as building a local B2B company. You're always competing globally. So that's another thing that we've said, okay, to build this trust and commitment, we have to, there's no substitute for spending in-person time with members of our team, but also with the founders and the different geographies. And that's what we do.
1: Interesting. So what advice do you give to people that are looking to pitch Next47? Next47? We, uh, well, with this, uh, there's a couple
0: of things that, that we, we look for at the beginning. Uh, we, we really like to understand the, uh, the product, the product that the founders are building and their product vision.
1: Okay. So
0: I think we generally start with that because a lot of people say, Hey, do you start with the team? We do start with the market and many other things, but we really want to see the founders bring together their view of a problem for lack of a better word, let's call it a market and their view of what they want to build. And we want that to come together in the product. And that initial product is an indication for us of the mastery of the team, their depth of their understanding of the problem space and how it actually manifests itself in a way that it's attractive to a buyer on the B2B side, depending on the customer segment. So we'd like to start with that we spend a lot of time understanding that, and uh, the second thing we for, for somebody, so uh, for somebody that's speaking to us, I think we really like to get to know the team because, uh, as I said before, we believe in kind of uh, a relationship that needs to kind of survive ups and downs, and you know, some we'll talk about our book a bit later. We do expect that every relationship. Every successful company is going to have its own ups and downs. And so we believe in getting to know the founding team and them getting to know us. And sometimes they get to know us through talking to the other funders that have chosen to work with us. So I think we, we focus on those two aspects. If we see a, an initial identification of a problem expressed in the product, a great product vision and a team that kind of we can understand and they can understand us i think that's the great starting point for us so if we can get that in our first meeting with with uh, any of the founders we'd love to meet that's that's i would call that success
1: no that makes a lot of sense so any advice for actually finding a co-founder and recruiting people for that early team because it's super important and you, you can. That could be the reason you fail miserably. That, that that's. A, a, I mean, spoken like somebody
0: who's seen this movie before, Kevin. Because mm-hmm. I think it's uh, it's it's one of those where we all. Uh, I always find that quote, assembling this initial founding team, and sometimes it's one person, but generally we like to see more than one person that's got that founder role, sure. and having complementary strengths. I think if you think about. Um, what are the strengths you need to kind of build a tech startup in our space, in in, in a BDSP space? I think uh, the scarce commodity, we believe, is kind of this product vision, which is why we start with that. Having one or two founders having that capability, having a founder that's got some perspective on customers, because you do have to do that early missionary selling and validation of the customer pain point and that uh, having that capability in one or two founders is an important thing. And then the third piece is just plain execution, right? Whether it's on the engineering side, scaling up operations, uh, we, we look for that. And we also look for that founding team to have the ability to attract other fantastic people right. to the startup. So my advice, if you're looking for co-founders, is to say, hey, from the eyes of what would make you successful, these are the ingredients. So each each founder that you assemble may not have all the qualities that you require. Some of them, you know, we have worked with individual founders who bring all of it together in one person. But it's more likely that it's two or three people, that, the collection of these two or three people, that, that's going to bring all the ingredients together.
1: No, th- that makes a lot of sense. I also think too, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on, is finding founders where you're you trust each other enough to challenge each other and and because you all if you get the right founders and you all have different backgrounds you're both trying to solve a problem but you're looking at it in different ways right and you're trying to find the holes and being able to kind of call each other out is kind of the wrong word for it but have that like passionate discussion about like why maybe that idea is Not a good one, and you could, and maybe this other one is, or vice versa, right? Like, what are your thoughts around that?
0: Yeah, it's 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 an excellent point. I think there's a couple of uh, additions to your initial observation there. First, this intellectual honesty amongst founders is an important ingredient. And as I said, um, and and as I as I talk about in my book, there are always small failures that happen in the journey of building a startup, and the most important thing is to start with acknowledging a failure or identifying a potential failure as it happens or just about as it's happened and it's kind of small and this is where the trust amongst the founding team is super important because if you have that trust and that honesty you can talk about hey what is failing what is not going right and how do we kind of make it better and 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 if and the other thing is that Sometimes you try to take different approaches to solving the problem as a founding team and something may be working and something may not be working. Having that real time um, calibration along the way is very important because let's say you got together and made a decision to do something and it's not working. Having that trust and you know, not letting ego or, you know, uh, not wanting to talk about it get in the way and say, hey, let's correct it because the cost yeah. of not correcting is way more expensive than, you know, just being nice to each other, you know, superficially. Uh, cool. The other thing is that found, being a founder is also extraordinarily stressful mm-hmm. and ha- you have to have enough give and take where there's empathy among the founders. If one founder sees the other one being stressed out, Um it's fashionable these days to kind of say, "Hey, go get a coach," but it's—I think—the much more effective way is a amount of self-regulation among the founding team to look out for each other and make sure each person is is um, is is working to their best capability, not getting burnt out or 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 stressed beyond a uh, point of productivity. So this is where the trust among the founding team comes into play as well. In my my experience, Kevin.
1: No, I, I think that's really good advice. So we've talked loosely about the book so what made you write a book what's it called and then let's dive into that
0: right so the book is called anticipate failure and um part of my inspiration for writing the book was what was from my one of my professors at business school okay. he taught a class in entrepreneurship and uh the the class was essentially 15 case studies on on business endeavors that failed okay and the uh he the login for the website for the class where you could download the materials the username was expect and the password was failure <laughs> so it always kind of stayed with me and as, uh, as, as I've kind of gone through this journey, as I said, uh, through the many years of working with founders and understanding how businesses get built, I, I realized that uh, the one thing that's kind of constant in any endeavor is you kind of have some minor failure points and there's patterns of failure. So the, one of the, my motivations to write the book was not to come out and say, as many business books do, to say, here's the five things you need to do. And once you do those five things, you you will be successful. That's that that doesn't never matches with the reality what actually happens in a startup and in, in even the most successful startups. Usually there are many failure points along the way totally. and as startups know how to see them, how to how how to, uh, rec- how to kind of work through them and how to get their path to success. So my motivation for writing that book was a little bit of inspiration from business school, but also my collective experience, which actually says, there's some patterns of things you might see as you build a startup. Let's make sure you don't take a small failure and then make them to cada- catastrophe, but you just kind of work through it and, and build your path to success which uh which was really the inspiration and 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 the book goes into different patterns of failure and uh how you you as a founder can can work through it.
1: interesting can you give us some examples of that and then maybe also in that how to actually pick yourself up when you go through some of these failures because sometimes it can be hard to not to keep going and and you know not just give up right when you probably shouldn't give up because probably in a few weeks or a few months, whatever you're stressed about today won't even matter and you won't even think about it anymore.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's very hard to dust yourself up off the ground if you've had a catastrophic failure. So let's acknowledge Fair. that, right? Okay. Yeah. I, I think that not every endeavor ends up being a success and it it is it is pretty hard. But the kind of failure that I wanted to talk about in the book and the patterns that I wanted to talk about, we're more where you're seeing early indications that things are not going right. Okay. And then kind of recognizing a pattern and, and saying, okay, is this really, am am I hitting a failure point? How do I diagnose this and how do I get around it and, and not let it become a catastrophic failure? So um, even though I don't like to say there's only so many different ways you things can go right or wrong. I've, collected my thoughts into, in the book into like seven patterns of failure. Okay. And um, so I, um, I, I quickly enumerate them just for, uh, th- and then we can dive into one that looks interesting. So okay. I, I kind of call it customer technology, product, team, timing, business model, and execution. And each one of them could fail. Okay. And uh, the point is to keep an idea, keep, keep in your head, these potential patterns of failure, we go to each one of them um, in detail where uh, we start with an idea or, or a business that looked to be looked to kind of change the world, but then it failed in one of those dimensions clearly. And then we kind of talk about it. So that's kind of how the book is
1: organized. Got you. Okay. So do you maybe want to dive a little bit deeper into some of those patterns that that maybe... Somebody could say that maybe you see that's common, um, or the most common in, in one of those verticals. Yeah, I mean, so let's let's take one uh, the, one of the
0: patterns. Uh, it's called timing failure, okay. um, and uh, this is this is the basic idea that you could have the right product at the wrong time or the right idea at the wrong time. And um, so one of the things that I I write about in the book, which I personally saw was that um, was this idea of the Apple Newton versus the iPhone um, versus um, uh, an Android phone that would have been launched you know, 10 years after the iPhone, you know? And so if you look at the Apple Newton, it was a world changing idea at that time, but it was too expensive and the yeah. market and internet and people were just not ready to adopt a connected handheld device. So it was a world-changing idea, but then it it was too early. Yeah, And yeah. then um, if you look at, I had the good fortune of working a little bit with Andy Rubin, who created uh, the uh, the Android operating system at Google. Very he cool. came out of Google to create a venture firm called Playground. And one of the ideas that he pursued in Playground, so we were investors when I was a Yellow Packer Pathfinder in in Playground, and one of the ideas that he pursued was this essential phone. I don't know if you remember this Yeah, yeah, totally. Some of the designs
1: were beautiful, like that long, skinny one that they never, I think, actually ended up releasing. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and and
0: and the idea behind the essential phone was to do a better version of the smartphone, better version of iOS and Android, which is to say a phone that would come with a pure Android operating system that would constantly be updated to so kind of give an iPhone-like experience, but it would also have peripherals that could be attached and, and, and taken off so that your hardware doesn't become as obsolete. Like if you needed to upgrade the camera, you would just Put in a new module, and your camera would be upgraded. So it, that that was the basic idea b- behind the essential phone. So really, then you're looking at uh, this timing failure that we're talking about here is the Apple Newton was too early. Yeah. It was too expensive and the market and the internet technologies that needed to create a smartphone experience simply did not exist. Like 3G networks did not exist. The e-commerce oh. did not exist. Social media did not exist. So all those hooks that would have made the Newton amazing did not exist and it it failed. You had the iPhone where you had uh, computing power Uh, that was available in in your hand at the right time with ARM chips, battery capacity and screens and 3 g connectivity. All these things kind of came together to create a wonderful and compelling experience with phones being indispensable in our lives there. That was the right timing. The essential phone was a great idea, but not great enough to overcome the fact that the iPhones and, Sa- and the Samsungs and, and all the different versions of uh, were, were available and the differentiation was not enough to overcome this incumbency and the utility of all the players in the market. So t- timing is one such example that you, you have to be operating in this golden window where the capabilities of the technology that you're pursuing should be available at a cost that's attractive. At the same time, all the ingredients to kind of, um, to make that experience, whatever that product that you're putting out in the market to be extraordinarily valuable to the user have to also be available. So when those two curves intersect, you have this golden window when the innovation's at just the right place. It's a little bit also like the Goldilocks and the three bears, right? You can be too early, too late or just right. And that's, that's an example of getting timing right.
1: No, I, I actually think that's, the perfect example and it's the same with like microsoft and the windows phone and and what i like about those two examples and i'm curious to get you probably agree with what i'm about to say and you can correct me if i'm wrong is obviously microsoft's a giant in yes well like company globally n- never mind just in tech and then you take the guy that actually created android sold it to google and both those that individual and that company both tried to bring a smartphone to the market to compete with Google and Apple and failed. And what I'm trying to get at there is big companies and people that have been successful still fail all the time. And it took me into my probably early 30s to actually, for that to finally dawn on me. And so I try to mention that as as much as possible because I don't know why it never dawned on me earlier in my career. And I hope that by saying that, that inspires other people to say, like, I failed at something. It doesn't matter because some of the biggest companies and the the most popular and wealthiest people on the planet fail all the time. You just don't hear about it as much.
0: Yeah, I think there's certainly – we like to celebrate success. We are a culture that celebrates success. And uh, there's a lot of confirmation bias in when things go right. And One of my great – things that keeps me motivated is having been behind the scenes before these successes were successes and being able to see how they played out and understanding that neither failure nor success is kind of preordained. I think the world gets to hear about the successes, but then the failures can also lead to some interesting learnings as long as they're not catastrophic and you can kind of turn it around. And, you know, something like the windows phone you're talking about, it was also a question of, did they have the right product vision and trajectory did they execute well? Did they make a lot of decisions right? So it's not just timing alone. There is many different uh, patterns of failure that come together in any one big catastrophic failure. But that That's an example. That's a great example.
1: No, interesting. So I'm curious to get your thoughts around any other advice for entrepreneurs to make sure that they can be or try to be as successful as possible and actually make it and get their startup to some sort of success?
0: Ah, this is, uh, well, I, I, I'm certainly anticipating a- avoiding different failures, you know, getting the product vision right, having, uh, under- truly understanding your customers, not just making assumptions about what, what delights them. Um, having a great set of talent assembled and, and prioritizing early on having that talent. And, and having some humility until you kind of hit that vein and, and can really kind of scale. And even that, you will see some road bumps along the way. So having that talent, humility, the initial idea and conviction around the idea. And frankly, you do have to be a, a, a little bit of a maverick to be a founder because yeah. not everything will be rational and fit together as a jigsaw puzzle at the beginning. So you have to have some strong belief and convictions. You got to take some great people along on the journey. And hopefully you have the humility to kind of learn and, and, and figure out like what's the right, what's the correct estimation. So these are ingredients that I've seen come together again and again. And I believe very strongly in this um, in, in this kind of formation of ideas, talent, exec- great execution coming together to create startups. So yes, many startups do fail, Kevin, but I think that what, it it is it is amazing when these things come together and you see something new being created that never existed. I, I have been fortunate to have seen many of these come together and and have working closely with founders that done that. Uh, I've also been fortunate to be working with founders where things didn't go exactly as you please. But to the founders, to the aspiring founders, the people that are doing things, I would say. It, uh, it, it is all worth it if you can kind of bring it together. So, yes, there's many failures, but if it works, it's amazing. And so, that's, that's, worth, that's worth the whole effort.
1: No, I, I understand and more. With, yeah, no, I 100% agree with you. I, I think that's actually really good advice. But I, I'm curious then, at what point, in your opinion, do you think a company is ready to get VC funding? If at all.
0: Yeah, that's right. I think that's what I was going to say is, is that um, funding to me is kind of like a means to an end. So if I look at the world from the eyes of the founder, uh, I would say you want to accomplish something. Yeah. So you want to yeah. change something. You want to solve a problem that nobody solved before, or you want to solve it in a different and uh, a way that achieves great outcomes that nobody else has done before. And, and that, that is kind of the starting point and getting to that end state is really the journey and funding whatever way you can achieve it is, is, are, are just kind of milestones along the way. So my advice, to my first advice to founders would be that w- w- revenue is the best form of funding. Sure. So uh, I, I know it's tongue in cheek, but it is, it's also true, like the, the best startups and the best ideas don't consume a lot of capital. Interesting. And, and that's I think that's really that, good advice. Yeah, and I think you've got to look at it that way. And I think that scarcity is one of the greatest things that aids in entrepreneurship because it is with this constraints that you get this, once you see where your destination is, having some constraints on capital, on, on, on many other resources that you might otherwise find in a big company or if you're funded by a lot, I think um, the constraints is what brings the focus, the the relentlessness into a startup environment that ultimately leads to success. And so therefore, my first advice would be to say, hey, you know, be clear on the destination and at the right point of the journey, decide to take capital or not. And uh, so, yes, while revenue is the best form of funding, there are many ideas where you first have to kind of create the product or the offering before you bring it to market. And then therefore venture funding becomes an essential part of the whole story. Um, I think it's when you are in your early days, I think you've got to have like different lenses on what kind of funding to take when I, uh, I'm I'm very pleased now that this is probably the best funding environment that I've ever seen from a founder's perspective. All sources of capital are available. Many different opportunities to exit are available. All kinds of check sizes and different kinds of investors are available. And I would say that have a clear eye view on what, what kind of capital and what kind of partnership you're looking for at different parts of the journey. When you are in your very early days, you need to your product's not quite there. You haven't yet landed all the customers that you want to land. You want people around you that can attract talent that understand your business and have the same conviction that you do because it's going to be a 10-year journey. And and then, of course, can provide capital. So that's kind of important. As you kind of build something and you're kind of going along the way, you could be a little bit more, um, I, I, I would call like for purpose on the capital in a sense that, hey, who's going to give me all the capital that I need at the highest possible valuation? And that there is a time for that in every startup's um, in every startup's journey, because doing that in the reverse order can have consequences um, that, that, are, that, that are quite significant if your journey doesn't go exactly as you planned in the early days. So, my advice to founders would be think I meaning have a destination in mind. Capital raising is some, there are some steps along the way. Early on, pivot for people who kind of share your conviction and are also providing the capital. And later on in your journey, you can be a little bit more, um, uh, I, I would say, uh, purposeful and just taking the best, the, the cheapest capital, essentially, on, on the
1: path. Interesting. No, I, I think that's that's really good advice. At what point does Next47 invest? Generally, we are investing at uh,
0: what 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 we call um, a Series A, and okay. the definition of a Series A varies a lot. So, uh, what we like to say, because I, I told you right at the beginning that we like to start with the product. Yeah. So, we we generally, as Next Forty Seven, try to start the journey with um, at a point that the founder has an initial version of the product that they're kind of developing and, and they've got a little bit of that product development journey left and they're about to go to market or they've kind of had their first customers and they're looking for kind of replicating their initial successes. And so that's the point at which we really like to talk to founders and help them because at Next47 we built, we are, I, I can probably say we are the only venture firm that has built a global go-to-market engine that's at scale so it's so we built our own sales team and, that goes out and um has a, a lot of existing customer relationships and brings those customer relationships to our portfolio company and our sales team is paid based on our portfolio companies uh, generating oh, revenue so we kind of built this machine and it's global and we address all customer segments uh from mid-market to uh, to enterprise to the smaller side of customers and our team is run by by our CRO who's also our operating partner and we have teams distributed globally so this this that's why we try to work with founders who are on the cusp of going to market because we feel uh, once you got once you have insight on the product then yeah. uh, building out a go to market can be done in a very disciplined scientific way and because we do it ourselves we can kind of impart the access but also a pattern for a founder to replicate in their journey.
1: Interesting. No, that that's quite fascinating. You guys also have an accelerator. Do you want to talk about that quickly? Yeah, the accelerator is is something that we do for our uh,
0: for, for Siemens, who uh, who fund who are the investors. You think you know we think of Siemens as investors in Next Forty Seven. So the accelerator is something that's very dedicated to ideas from within Siemens so one of the ways that Siemens benefits from having next 47 certainly they get the market insights from the investments that we make at the macro level like where's the world going what 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 are the big shifts that are happening in the market and our portfolio is reflective of that so they they certainly get that we benefit from Siemens because the customer relationships that they've had globally help our go-to-market team win customers for our portfolio company so we benefit from that they provide us capital but the way we also benefit Siemens is that we run uh, with um, with partners that uh, already run accelerators uh, outside. We partner with them and we bring them into Siemens to help grow ideas from from the ground up from within Siemens. So we run this on a rolling basis. We uh, do to a lot of our colleagues in Siemens, and they kind of benefit from this perspective. And it's global, so we run it in the US, in Europe, in China, in India. So we re- we run our accelerator globally.
1: Interesting. No, I, I think that's, that's fascinating. So you guys have invested in companies and created businesses that are selling obviously globally. Uh, what advice do you give to startups? Because I find sometimes startups sometimes just focus in their country or or maybe their continent, but and don't think globally. So, how do you work with or change people's minds to get them to think globally? I get it doesn't work for every company, but I think in a lot of cases it does.
0: Yeah, it's 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 it's, an, uh, it, it's a fairly interesting thing because I think we touched on this global aspect right at the beginning. The venture firms are going global. Uh, what what uh, what people what founders need to understand is that. There are entrepreneurs globally and capital is available globally. And generally what we find is if, we, if somebody has a good idea in one continent, it is more than likely that in the other two, in the other continents, there are entrepreneurs who also have such ideas. Right. Um, when you had the scarcity of capital in venture, where venture was only available in, in Boston and Route 128 and Sand Hill Road, that was a different era. Right now you have to understand that if you have great ideas no matter what part of the world you are in then then you are going to have founders and founding teams coming together capital being available and people are going to pursue those ideas um I would whether it's our founders in the US uh Israel or in Europe what we advise them is to say hey or or in India for that matter initially if you can think about success in your home country. It's a little bit more difficult for, for Israeli founders because Israel is such a small market. But right. if you're in India, if you're in Germany, you're in France, you're in the US, think about success in your, in, in your own country, uh, build an initial product, uh, do your initial customer wins and have this kind of repeatable selling model going um, in, in your home country because only with strength can you go to another market don't run to another market too early and this usually means a few few million dollars in ARR for a b2b startup in their in their home country and a very good understanding from the founding team of what pattern exists that they can then replicate and then I would then what we as next 47 we work with the founders so either a founder moves to to their next country or uh, we make help them make that initial hire that can show evidence that they can their model also works in the other country before fully, you know, scaling that operation. And I would advise that once you're in the early, once you're starting to um, get that early momentum right in your home country, you have to think about the next country. If you're a European founder, you're thinking about U.S. as your next country. Uh, And and this is what we advise them as a pattern. Don't go from France to Germany, but go like from France to the U S because you want to go after the biggest markets available because in B2B, it's going to be important that you establish category leadership, right? You are the person that's defining this new category and you want to do that globally. And, and that that's kind of an important formula for uh, a formula for success. So my advice would be get stood up. And if you have a strong local market, show your initial success there. Then think about the next big market you can go after. We can be great partners, but it also kind of takes that commitment and readiness to kind of go go to that next market.
1: No, I, I think that's really good advice. But sadly, we're coming to the end of the show. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about Next47, the book, and any other links you want to mention? Yeah,
0: I think... Our, um, um, the book is called Anticipate Failure. It is available. It's it's to be launched in December. So you can look it up on Amazon or any uh, any online um, source. Um, and we will have it both as physical copies or for fans of ebooks. We will have it in all different formats and all the different ebook stores starting early December. They, uh, for Next 47, um, our, our website is next47.com. Please feel, reach, uh, feel free to reach out to anybody in our team. Um, on the investment team, uh, we, we, as I said, we're a global firm. We operate um, in, in, uh, in 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 the U.S., Israel, um, and Europe, and also in India. So please reach out to the partner that's closest to you, and we'll be happy to talk to you.
1: Very cool. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time under your day to be on, to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. Thank you so much, Kevin. Thank you. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening.